episode 19 of Building Optimal Radio. I'm Jared Gossett, and today we're going to be starting a series of interviews with a gentleman named David Gerstel. David is a well-known speaker in the industry, and David is also a successful author, having written several books, one of which is the basis for our conversation, and that book is called Nail Your Numbers. It is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. It covers a lot of truths about the home building and remodeling industry, but uh, specifically, it's going to talk a lot about bidding and estimating, which is a weak point for a lot of us. So I highly recommend it. David is also a builder. He's a longtime builder, and I think he started when he was 24, if I remember correctly. But one of the things that's so impressive about David is that he uh, was able to retire and was financially independent less than 10 years in the industry. So there's a lot to learn from the guy about his strategies, and we dive into those over these uh, these upcoming interviews. But today, we're really focusing primarily on building accurate bids, building better bids. For those of you who have been listening, y'all know that I can uh, go off the rails. And I think we do that a few times in today's interview. Um, but he's a fascinating guy, so I have to do it. I have to take that bait. Everybody should learn a little something. You guys check it out. David, you make a strong case as to why estimating is not bidding, and we shouldn't confuse the two as we often do. You even say we need a wall between bidding and estimating in our operations. Why is that? Okay, let me, let me answer that question with a couple of stories rather than abstract ideas. I first encountered this idea about a wall at a really good seminar on estimating and bidding that I attended many years ago. Uh, a builders group that I was part of, a wonderful group called the Splinter Group, uh, had invited a guy who was the chief estimator for a pretty good-sized company, uh, mid-sized, I would say, you know, something on the order of 200 employees. His company did largely commercial work. We were that is to say, those of us in the Splinter Group were primarily residential or very small-scale commercial builders at the time. We wanted to hear you know, what a guy from the big time had to say about estimating and bidding. When he described his process, he emphasized the need for a wall. And he was talking about a literal wall. At his company, he sat with his estimators. He was chief estimator, and he had five or six assistants, I guess. He sat in a room and broke down the plans and created the estimate of direct costs. His job was to get those costs correct. Uh, the way I like to say it is that estimating is about facts and bidding is about policy. If that's correct, then the job of this chief estimator for this mid-sized commercial company was to get the facts about the cost of production of the job right. When he was completed with his estimate, he did not add the charges for overhead and he did not add the charges for profit. That is bidding. That's a adding overhead and profit charges to a, um, a bid or including them in a bid is a policy decision. And that policy decision was not made by this chief estimator. 
his estimate was handed literally through a door. There was a wall. The door, the wall had a door in it. And he took his estimate and he unlocked that door or went through it and gave the estimate to company executives. I don't know exactly who that would be. It might have been the owner. It was the owner who added the charges for overhead and profit. He had ways of calculating how much of his overhead burden should be allocated to the particular job that he was bidding, that his estimator had estimated the facts about costs for. And it, then once he'd made that decision, he made another policy decision, which was to determine how much profit to add. And of course, many factors go into determining profit. And one is market conditions. I mean, how much profit will the market allow you to add? Sometimes it's quite generous and you can add pretty good profit charges. And sometimes if you want to get work, you can't add any. It's the bidder's job to make those policy decisions about overhead and profit and add overhead and profit charges into the bid. Now, for a small company like my own, and in my case and in the case of many builders, the owner is the estimator and he's also the bidder. So if that is the case, then he has to build a wall in his mind to keep his estimating and bidding separate. And I'll tell you a little story about an event I had yes, an episode I or an encounter I had a couple of days ago, I guess, maybe it was yesterday, um, that kind of underscore the need for that. I, I happened to meet a young man who used to be a lead for the best electrical contractor I've ever worked with. And this young man was just beginning to learn to estimate. And he told me that he found it very difficult. He didn't understand there was a difference between estimating and bidding yet. He hadn't gotten that far. His problem was that he would start estimating the cost of the items in the job, and he would see the cost mounting up. And he would get worried. He'd think, that's too high. We'll never get the job if it goes that high. So he would start bidding while he was estimating what I mean by that is he would start instinctively lowballing the costs, saying, ah, it won't take that much time to do that item. I'll call it two hours, not four. The next item, I'll, oh, gosh, it couldn't, we can do it in less than five hours. I'll call it three hours. I got to get this bid down because we won't get the job if I don't. So he was bidding for the job, in essence. He was bidding to get the job by trying to keep the cost down. He should have been just trying to get the facts right. But he wasn't doing that. He, was, he didn't know how to create that wall in his mind. And it's not easy to do. What, what I've, one thing I've learned is if you're using an electronic spreadsheet, which is totaling up your costs, you better set up your spreadsheet so you don't see that running total as you work your way through the items. Because if you do, if you see how the costs are mounting up, you might find yourself to push to start lowballing on the cost of items, to start bidding, in other words, when you really should just be estimating and trying to get your facts right. So long answer. I hope it made some sense. Yeah. That, that register for you? It, that did. And you hit something so important to me that you said this guy you're talking about that he, he was trying to win the bid rather than get the facts right. Two issues that get conflated all the time. And should that right there, there should be a firewall between those two. Because why do you want to win a bid if you're not going to make any money? One of the worst things you can do is take on a job and spend your time doing something that ultimately isn't going to yield profit. I, I think it's it's better to lose better to lose a deal than take on something that, that you uh, later regret. I would agree generally. Although 
there are times you might want to take on a job where you wouldn't make any profit and you might not even quite cover your overhead. In other words, you might lose money. Maybe the portion of the money you would lose would be your own salary. You might have to take, not make much of your salary on a job. And you might do that to keep your crew busy through a slow time, but you don't want to be making that decision and aiming for that target while you're estimating. Make that decision when you mark up for profit and say, you know what, I'm just going to go without profit on this job. I know I can't get the job if I mark up for profit and I want to keep the guys busy through this little four week period. So I'm going to just do this job on a break even basis or even a little less. You don't want to do that too often. This is too tough a business to survive in, you know, as it is. So always giving away profit, obviously, is not a sustainable strategy. Yeah. Get the facts right and then make your policy decision about whether you want to make X, Y, or Z profit or make, make zero profit if you simply need that even flow production to keep people busy. Yes. Right. Gr- great advice. Okay. Take care, take care of your guys. You know. Before we go any further, uh, let's talk for a second about uh, how you define project cost. You break project cost into five categories. Can you walk us through those categories with a quick explanation? Well, let me start and answer that question by telling you, sometimes I'll be reading a book and I'll find an idea I think is a really good idea for general contractors. And then I suddenly realize I'm reading my own book (laughs) and I had forgotten about the idea. It's probably something I learned from somebody else and, you know, integrated into my own process at some point and then kind of let slip away. And I I don't actually quite know what you mean by five categories. Did I write about that in the book? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I, there's there's uh, a definition that I'm, I guess I'm coming up for you putting in your mouth. So in your book, I see your your pie charts, the way you break down cost in. Oh, 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 oh. And okay. basically the labor materials. So if if that jogs or if that gets us on the same page, I'll let you take it from there or I'll, I'll walk you through the five as I know them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I just, I don't know quite what to say here. I, I think I've got this pie chart in the book and it is broken up. You're right into, well, actually into six slices, but the five principal ones, well, the six slice, a little subdivision of one of the five slices, so I guess there are five slices. I've got the facts, the fact slices, that would be subcontractors and services. Number one, slice number two, material. Slice number three, estimated labor with a little additional slice for additional labor experience during construction, because sometimes you do miss on your labor a bit. So there's three fact slices, and there are two policy slices, and that's overhead and the final fifth slice, profit. There you are. Okay. I want to add my own color to this. I I don't know how our listeners kind of uh, view their costs compared to me, but we... We'll talk about this, I think, in one of our upcoming episodes with you in this series. But uh, we use strictly subcontractors. We really, our labor is strictly construction management, which we capture in overhead. So we really have pretty much a 0% labor in our pie chart, which is pretty common in my part of the world. I don't know how that really stacks up compared to other parts of the states, but for so for me, labor would mean in direct labor in our company zero, and then of course we do have our material subcontractors, and then the other two overhead and profit. But I just wanted to call that out for other people who are 
in my boat because they might be thinking, well, what what is labor? It's not subcontractor labor. It is it is direct labor. Yeah, crew uh, labor. Yeah, if crew you, labor. Uh, employing, I mean, in the other model, I mean, you've embraced, um, I think of as the developer model because developers have used that that no crew model for a long time, much longer than general contractors. They really initiated it. Uh, so you're using the developer model and you don't have a crew, but if you use the, what I call the traditional model, um, which is the one that I always used, um, uh, you employ carpenters and, and you build the foundations, you frame your projects and you do the finish work. Or in some cases now guys will sub the foundations, but maybe frame in-house and do the finish work in-house or just do the finish work in-house. And they have crew doing that. And that's, that's the slice of cost I cover in the estimated labor portion of my pie there and page 21 of nail your numbers. So uh, while we're talking about these different cost categories, let's talk about overhead allocation for a second. I know there are several ways to allocate overhead for a job. You outline, I believe three in your book, but first let's just make sure that we are speaking the same language. What do you typically include in overhead? Okay, let, let me open the book to, let's see here, to the uh, list of overhead costs. It's on, actually on chapter 14, I'll nail your numbers. Uh, there's a, a full page sidebar in which, which I list overhead costs. In, in the sidebar, I label them as selling general and administrative expenses, SGA. That's a you know a term you'll encounter if you want to spend a little time boring yourself to death reading financial statements from major corporations. But it's a pretty descriptive term because I think it it describes nicely what overhead really breaks down into. So let, let me give a few examples. I've got about goodness gracious seventy items here, I guess, that listed on this page. But let me give you an example an example or two of each of these three divisions of overhead. Selling, first of all, selling expenses, job site signs, websites, handouts for prospective clients, if you're still using paper, home shows, general expenses. If you got a little yard or even just a little tool shed, maintenance of that yard or tool shed, office furnishings and fixtures, computers, obviously. Landlines, smartphones, there's four general expense examples. Here's another one, theft insurance, bad debts, bad debts, because now and then you get a client who doesn't pay you fully. I've been fortunate to avoid that entirely, but I've been more fortunate than a lot of other guys in that respect. Administrative expenses, estimating, bookkeeping, office supplies, postage. And again, there's 20 more administrative expenses. So that's that's what I mean by overhead. Does that that work for you? Yep, that's perfect. Okay. So speaking about overhead, of the three methods that you discuss, I I won't get into all of them. Let's just just for sake of uh, of time here, let's talk about your recommendation. You advocate for what's called the time capacity method. In your book, can you explain that to us? 
Okay, so I'll have to preface this by saying that there are two, you know, widely used methods of marking up or overhead. One is the fixed percentage method. You know, that's kind of what you learn when you're starting out. Uh, gosh, there's something called overhead and profit. I better charge for that. How much? Oh, Charlie down at the lumber yard. I really respect Charlie. He said 10% for overhead, 10% for, for profit. Charlie said everybody uses that. So I guess I'll charge 10% for overhead and 10% for profit. Of course, at that point in your career, you have career, you have no idea what overhead or profit actually are. So it's a good start. Yeah, be better than leaving it out entirely. It is actually a lot better. <laughs> and then people move on to that, to what they, what is, you, you're familiar with this, of course, the gross profit margin method. And I'm, I'm not going to go into that. I've got a pretty elaborate or complete explanation in the book of just how the gross profit margin formula is derived and just how the method is used. My personal opinion of it is that it's basically really another fixed uniform percentage method of marking up, just like 10 and 10. It's just disguised in a lot of fancy math and fancy MBA talk, and frankly, it's bullshit. I agree. And then we come to the third method. Now, I have to say that my version might be a little homespun. I actually invented this for myself. And when I published Nail Your Numbers, I was really interested to meet a very erudite builder, construction business consultant, um, met him online, we've never met personally yet, named Gerald Hayes. Um, Gerald was actually a fan of my capacity-based markup method, and I think he referred to it as a seminal idea, but he also, through his wide reading, discovered that other people in other industries had this, you know, develop the same approach. Now, I'm certain it's certainly not original with me, even though I stumbled on it for myself. Basically, this is the way it works, and I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out the way it works with an example because I think that'll be more clear than using abstractions or generalizations. Let's assume you're, and I'm gonna use a real simple example. I'm not gonna use the more complex examples and nail your numbers. Let's assume that um, you're running a you know, modest-sized construction company. Maybe you're in your eighth-year business and you got a couple of crews and you're doing pretty well. You have a certain revenue. But when you're using the capacity-based method of allocating overhead to a job, you don't worry about revenue. That's a, Revenue is a factor when you're using the, the fixed percentage methods, but not with capacity-based methods. You just look at your overhead. And in the example that I'm going to trot out here, you're going to figure your overhead is $40,000 a year. Now, that works out over a 52-year period, 52-week, I'm sorry, 52-week period to 770 bucks a week. 770 is a figure you get to if you round up a bit. Now, you really, when you're figuring capacity-based markup, you might want to allow for some down weeks and not really use the full 52 weeks. But again, for sake of simplicity, I've used 52 weeks. And also, I should mention that I'm actually using an example here for a company that's just doing one job at a time. You know, you're really in your startup phase. You're running your company, but you're probably still working on your jobs as a carpenter or project manager, at least. In any case, you figured your overhead is $770 a week. So you have a job possibility. Let's say that it's a small addition, and you're going to figure that this addition is gonna take you 12 weeks. You figure all your direct costs for the job, you figure the facts of the costs, 
first, and then it's time to make that policy decision about overhead. How much overhead are you going to allocate? Using the capacity-based method, really I call it capacity time-based method, but I shortened the capacity-based markup method, keep it simpler. You take your 770 a week of overhead that you incur running your company, including a salary for yourself for running your company and enough money to cover all your postage stamps and your paper and your computer. And you multiply the 770 times the 12 weeks you expect the remodel to take. And that gives you a figure of $9,240 for overhead for that job. And that's how much overhead you allocate to that job. Now, if you were doing a real small job, you might nudge the overhead per week down a little bit. And if you're doing a bigger job, like building a new house, you might nudge it up somewhat because a really small job will burden you with a little less overhead but than a, than a much bigger job. But truthfully, in fact, the difference is not very great. It does not take a lot more support from your office once you successfully bid the job and sign the contract to support, um, say, a crew with a lead out in the field doing a house construction, building a new home doesn't take much more office support than does, say, a kitchen remodel. Not, not on a weekly basis. That's capacity-based markup explained via example. Now, we could go on to some more complex examples, bigger companies with multiple crews. But basically, we'd be using the same method. If we had a three-crew company, we'd be figuring the total overhead. Now, we'd be up in a couple hundred thousand dollars or so per year. We divide the, the couple hundred thousand dollars by... 52 weeks or maybe 48 weeks, come to uh, a figure, divide it by three, and then we have the weekly overhead per project that, that we need to recapture by charging for overhead within our bid for those given projects. So there you are. That's about the best I can do without having a piece of paper to you know show our listeners. Hopefully that made some sense to them. Yeah, I, no, I think that was a good explanation. Let, let me ask you a little spinoff question from that. This is this is a philosophical thing I've always wondered. So let's say that you're a small company, and you know, you let's just keep things very simple. Say that you've got capacity for two projects per year. Uh, okay, two, two projects at a time. You mean uh, two two projects? Sure, sure, two projects at a time. Let's okay, two projects at a time. And you have failed in your job to, to have, you know, to, to work towards capacity and, and you only have one. You've only been operating at one. So should the overhead you're assigning to that project be reflective of the overhead that, that you would have if you're, if you're operating efficiently, meaning operating two at a time? Or do you go ahead and assign all of that overhead to the one? That's a really good question. No method of adding charges to your facts, to your costs for overhead and profit is perfect and without challenges. You can ask a very similar question about the fixed percentage methods of markup. And on the way to the answer, I'd have to say that's why overhead allocation is a policy decision because you have to decide whether you're going to try and recapture the full overhead for your company on this one job that you've got going when in fact, you know, you really need to have two jobs going to keep, keep your company fully busy. 
Um, it would really depend on the situation. Um, it might be that you would have to say, you know, I'm just going to have to swallow half my overhead for a month or so because I can't, I can't burden this one job we've got with the full company overhead. I, I will never, you know, that wouldn't be fair to the client. Um, I might not get the job if I tried to do that. A number of factors could come into play. Alternately, you might decide um, that although your normal load is two jobs, say two remodels uh, with a lead and that leads crew handling a job and another lead and their crew handling a job, you might decide, you know what, I'm going to take on a job that is really at our limits of capability. It's a big job for us. But I'm going to take it on because it's going to step us up the ladder a bit. And that job is the only job we'll be doing during the, during the period of time we're, we're building it. So I'm going to allocate all of my overhead to that job. So if my overhead was 770 per crew when I'm operating at my normal two jobs with one crew on one job, one crew on another, I'm going to double it up and, and attach all the overhead to that one big job. And that would be reasonable because given the size of the job, the um, proportion of overhead burden to job cost, job price, I should say, would be acceptable. But it's a policy decision, and it's going to have to be made on a case-by-case basis. Great info. Um, let's talk a little bit more about about some of these estimating issues. You mentioned how estimating for direct labor is probably the most difficult to estimate of all the cost categories, but you have a system called labor productivity records that you recommend. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'd love to. I, I think um, that is the best idea I've ever had as a builder. And it always surprises me when I meet guys who have read my books and think that they've been helpful to them that I rarely hear it mentioned. Um, I think that's partly because the first time I mentioned it was in running a successful construction company. And I don't think I emphasized it enough. I thought it was such a good idea that it'd just be obvious to everybody they should grab a hold of it. But I didn't present it very well. I had a dim illustration and just didn't take hold. So in this new book, and Nail Your Numbers, um, which is subtitled, by the way, A Path to Skilled Construction Estimating and Bidding. A path, not the path, a path to skilled estimating and bidding. I really went into the labor productivity record issue. And I will try to explain it, since my, our listeners don't have a form in front of them, again by example. Um, in Chapter 12, I've got 18 sample labor productivity records. And I'm going to look at number two here. As a way of explaining the idea to you, I'll tell you about example number two, record number two. I'll start by giving the full name for these records. It's a mouthful, so bear with me here. It's Narrative Historical Labor Productivity Record. And I'm going to explain each of those five words as it relates to the records as a way of trying to portray the record to you. First of all, they're narrative records because they tell a story. Labor productivity always has a story behind it. Like any story, it, it's got time and place. So in the labor productivity record, there are lines for describing the project, where the project was and who owned it. And there's lines for describing the crew. The crew are the main characters, well, along with the designer and the owner in the story. 
And so they are described. And for this particular labor productivity record, I've got the lead. Here I call him Daniel M. He's in his sixth year as a lead, and he's outstanding. And there's a, a journeyman and an apprentice. So that's the story behind this labor productivity record. That's the narrative. These records are historical because they're about actual productivity that occurred in real time, in history, in historical time. And they are labor productivity records, obviously, because they're about labor productivity. Now, what is labor productivity? Labor productivity is not uh, dollars per unit of work. It's time per unit of work. And this particular labor productivity record I'm looking at here and telling you about is for the lead time for the new construction. In other words, the time the lead carpenter on the job. I always ran my jobs with a lead carpenter in charge and me backing him up. This record is for the time that he spent actually running the job as opposed to working with his tools. Now, this job is for the construction of a pretty complex new home with challenging craftsmen and modernist detail. So the lead time worked out to 2.9 hours per day or 11.6 hours for four-day work week. Well, I've always used my company a, a four-day work, work, four work week. I think it's a tremendous advantage for everybody, including me and my crew. But the key, the key labor productivity figure here is 2.9 hours per day of lead time, meaning the time the lead spends on project management. That's a labor productivity record. That's a narrative historical labor productivity record, a, a labor productivity record with a full story told and the labor productivity recorded very precisely in hours per, in this case, per day. In another case, let's say a labor productivity record for framing, the labor productivity number would be hours per foot of framing. For baseboard, it would be hours per piece of baseboard, probably, and so on. That's it. And I, 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 built, I built up hundreds of these labor productivity records. Once you've got the idea and you've got the system in place for building up these records, it doesn't really take much time to develop them. When you've got your file of these records, you can very, very efficiently and very accurately uh, project the costs for your crew's work on a project. Great explanation. And, and that's something that this is all a little foreign to me because my personal experience, we don't utilize uh, in-house crews, but I think for our listeners, this is a much improved, more rational approach, and and I'm amazed at probably how much what the the benefit that most people will see if they start implementing that. It's I'll just add that the option really is job cost records, and they are compared to historical labor productivity records, they're like you know a sawzall compared to a Festool track saw in terms of the difference in precision. <laughs> They enable. Good metaphor or analogy. So here's a uh, here are a few million dollar questions, and and my interest is particularly peaked on these. Uh, let's talk about profits for a second. So regarding profits, you talk to a lot of builders. I mean, uh, what are the typical ranges of profit margin that you see for new construction and remodeling? Oh boy, all over the board. I doubt my answer will satisfy you. First of all, a lot of guys have no idea what their profits are. 
And I don't, and they wouldn't want to tell me in any case, uh, I suspect. I would say uh, the range of profits I run into are sharply negative. What I mean by that? I mean, uh, a guy who, you know, charges, works on T&M basis. He's got a little, he's got his pickup truck, his dog and his tools, and he's a heck of a good carpenter. And he's charging, well, out here he might be charging 80, 90 bucks an hour for his work. And when he's finished with the job, he looks at how much he collected at 90 bucks an hour, how much, what his total collection was. He says, man, I made a lot of profit on this job. He calls what really hourly wages profit. And he neglects to realize that he's got a lot of overhead, meaning a lot of time he spends with clients that he doesn't charge for, particularly when he's, you know, developing an estimate or just taking a first look at a job. And he's got a truck and he's got tons of investment in tools and those tools are depreciating. But he just doesn't recognize that as cost. He thinks of his tools as, you know, his favorite toys and his truck as another favorite toy. So he doesn't discount their costs from his $90 an hour. And he certainly doesn't add anything back on for profit. So he's got basically a negative profit. And at the other end of the spectrum is um, one, you know, famous now retired remodeler down in Silicon Valley who charged, let me see now, um, well, 90% gross profit margins, meaning for every two bucks she charged her clients, almost $1 was for her overhead and profit. And she was very proud of that, but she, but she never did disclose how much of it was profit. Uh, so there's just, I mean, there's a staggering range. I, I'll tell you this. I will tell you that over the long haul, for most, cons most construction companies, virtually all, profit is pretty darn modest. In fact, I've got a, a little essay in Nail Your Numbers, which I've titled Construction, a Not-for-Profit Industry? Question <laughs> mark. And my answer is that it basically is a not-for-profit industry. And the reason is that, you know, you may have runs during periods like this one when there's just work is just booming, when you can't actually realize pretty good profits, but very frequently they just drain right back out the door during down periods. I've provided a lot of examples of that. I think that's a, that is an essay which is to sober up anybody who has giddy expectations as to how rich they're going to get being a builder. That begs the question then, um, is there just in your opinion, a better business model within the industry that you've seen that tends to on average yield a higher profit margin? I don't think I have knowledge to answer that question. Yes or no. I really wish I did, but to my knowledge, there is no information about what sort of profit companies, um, well, not take that back. There is information. There is, is information about what profit companies realize in general. And you, you know the name Michael Stone? I do not. Michael is a longtime remodeling consultant or, you know, small company construction business consultant. He's written a book called Overhead Markup, which is widely read. It, his book and my book are always jostling for the number one place in the Amazon bestseller lists. <laughs> but Michael started out as a salesman. I started out as a carpenter, still love carpentry. And he's really trying to teach guys how to make a profit. And he's expressed sort of, he's been honest enough to publicly express his dismay at how little success he has. He's just insistent that guys should aim for an 8% profit. And they don't get there. 
In fact, you know, the guys who are successful with him, he says, if I've got this right, I think I have it right, tend to average around 4% over longer haul. But then you also got to ask, well, what about the guys who didn't stay with you, Michael, the guys who just altogether dropped out? Those are guys who probably had losses. And if you figure their losses in, you'd come to something less than 4%. And I can give you, I can give you a, a similar examples uh, of figures provided by other guys who've attempted to make a living by teaching contractors how to make a profit and really haven't had much success at it. I mean, this is, I, I'm going to try to say this in a way which doesn't make me sound horribly vain, but I kind of like my model. I'm a very frugal guy, so I've always kept my model really simply. And by simple, I mean I've operated out of 50 square feet. My office is really 50 square feet in the corner of a spare bedroom in my house. My tool shed is a, a little you know, 100 square foot by 14 foot tall building that I built out of scrap lumber in the back of my house. I, I do everything I can to keep down overhead. I see other builders squandering what I view as squandering money on overhead. Uh, you know the name Judith Miller by any chance? No, I don't. Judith is a, is a deservedly respected, highly respected business strategist. She's a facilitator for Remodelers Advantage. When she used to work here in the Bay Area. And for one reason or another, she was once in my office and she was, you know, breaking down my books and taking a close look. And she said, she said, goodness, goodness, David. I said, what, what, what am I doing wrong? She said, I thought people couldn't operate on less than 8% out of pocket overhead. That's aside from whatever salary they paid themselves running their company. And you're at one and a half percent. How do you do that? So I just did it. I just winnowed overhead down constantly. And what that meant that I could do was when I went to a job, I could charge for overhead and profit combined at a rate that was very competitive, very competitive with my peers. My peers are guys who had really good reputations for being doing really good work, really reliable work. I, my peers were not guys who were, you know, low-balling jobs. When I go out and when I put together a, a price or a bid for a job, I could include a charge for overhead and profit that was combined, that was very competitive with my peers, but that was almost all profit because I didn't let anything seep out the door for those out-of-pocket overhead costs. And the result for me was I never lost money on a job, not ever. I uh, was financially independent something like 10 years after I went into business in, at age 34. In fact, less than 10 years, more like seven. Um, not in, financially independent at a modest level, but I'm frugal. So it doesn't take a lot of money for my wife and I to live quite nicely. And now, it, you know, much later in life, you know, we live on, as I told you earlier, something like 5% of our investment income. So my model is lean, lean, just destroy overhead wherever you can. Now, sometimes you can go a little too far with that. I committed overkill occasionally. I never, ever had a job site sign, and it didn't really hurt us because um, we always had, there's more demand for our work even in slow times than we could fulfill because we weren't a very big company. But looking back, not having a job site sign was kind of stupid because I would have had, I would have gotten more calls from prospective clients and been able to you know, choose even better jobs than we actually ended up doing. Maybe, maybe. Or maybe I just saved 
some overhead by not having a job site sign. Um, I had virtually no marketing. My, my customers were my sales force. Um, they loved my guys and they put up with me and they would tell their friends, you know, you're going to do a job. You call this guy Gerstel and see if he'll put one of his crews out on your job. Because those, those guys on his crew, they are angels. And they're great carpenters, great builders. So that's my model. It worked. I think it's a better model. I think the model that gets you involved in creating an image and a legacy, that's words I hear all the time. I think it's bad business management. I don't think it's a good model. You know who else thinks that? This is a guy named Warren Buffett who lives in Omaha. You've heard of him? <laughs> Once or twice, yeah. <laughs> he hates unnecessary overhead. And, and Warren, by the way, was a big part of my business education. I studied and studied and studied the book called Intelligent Investor, written by his mentor, Ben Graham. That's a great book. And every builder who can tolerate heavy-duty reading should read that book. I cut my teeth in the investment industry, so I know that, that book well. Okay, well, I, I, I want to repackage what you just said just because my, my personal belief is that uh, it's, it's always beneficial to model yourself after, after those who've, who've come before you and had great results. And, and if you were independent, financially independent at 34, you were doing something right. So you, as I understand what you're saying, did not necessarily hit a gold mine financially in terms of huge profits. You were, you were steady, you didn't lose money, but where you perhaps outperformed more than anything was just in your conservation of of overhead and unnecessary expenses and that frugality combined with a disciplined estimating approach allowed you to put money away over that course of 10 years and be financially independent by 34. Is that, am I saying the same thing that you are? I think it's, you said it much better than I did. It's, I just add that I was broke when I was 27. I had $500 and some tools. So it took seven years to get the financial independence. I had some, you know, and what I should add to this, and I really should have added it earlier, is a lot of my success is, and I really mean this, is based on luck, right time, right place. And, and um, I think anybody who enjoys, you know, real, what we call success in life should acknowledge that. And Warren Buffett certainly does. He does all the time. And uh, uh, his luck is important. You have really bad luck. You know, storming uphill against it is can be it makes makes the journey much more difficult. I should add this, Jared. I mean, you're you're expert about financial issues. You know, part of the reason for keeping overhead low. Another way to look at that discipline is to say you, you construction is a terrible business. I mean, the, the airline business might be worse, but if it is worse, it's not worse by much. It's a terrible business, and um, there are far far more bank and infinitely more builders who've gone bankrupt than have ended up blessed as I have. So you don't want to invest a lot of money in your construction business. It's a bad business. Invest your money in good businesses, you know, get some good rentals in a you know, place where, you know, there's a good rental market invest. Not when the market's as crazy high as it was until, well, it still is as it is now, as that is the stock market, but invest in stocks, invest in bonds, build up a portfolio of stocks and bonds. Um, simple, simple versions of it, index funds. Don't pour your money into, you know, fancy digs for your construction company, into excess, you know, software burden. 
Don't do that. Invest in better businesses. Yeah. Okay. That's my, that's my model. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. And, and I'm going to add one thought to this whole profit margin discussion. Most of us as owners of, of our small companies are underpaying ourselves anyway to conserve cash. I see it time and time again. So if you, if you're to really apply probably a proper salary for what we're doing, and then on top of that, apply probably a, a appropriate warranty reserve to what we're doing, it puts even more stress on, on that net profit margin number. So the point is oftentimes that net profit margin that, uh, you may see QuickBooks spit out may be a little bit higher than what the real picture is. Interesting. Yep. Well said. Right on. Here's my last question on this, on this, uh, profit margin and kind of pricing discussion, then we'll wrap up this episode. It's a really opaque business in terms of pricing transparency as it comes to producing bids and you're bidding against maybe other, you know, other builders. We don't really know how much any of our competitors are charging. And that's not to say that we should know that in order to make sure that we come in at the lowest, lowest bid. I don't really believe in the sustainability of that strategy. I think we all need differentiating factors that allow us to charge for that value that we provide, but we need to know where we generally sit within that, uh, price wise within the broader market. So do you have any opinions on this about how we can get that information or how we can see how we're stacking up competitively against others in the market? Well, not a lot. And I'll say the, in part, the reason that I don't have much information is I never did competitive bidding to speak of. I, I've always wanted to put on my truck a sign that says no free estimates since, since 1945. But, but <laughs> my, wife, my wife has nixed that <laughs> wisely, um, I suspect. Um, I never really worried much about what other people were charging, and I don't necessarily recommend doing that. I mean, you know, you, you bid a job, you use good materials, they cost what they cost. You hire good trade partners, i.e. subcontractors. Uh, they cost what they cost. You pay your crew, you know, wages at the high end of the local scale because that's, because that's what top guys deserve. And you don't want to work with any, anybody but top guys because their productivity rates are so much higher than second best guys. They cost what they cost. You figure using, you know, this good material great trade partners, great crew, you figure the, the facts about an upcoming job. You know, you figure the direct costs and you figure them accurately because you've got those historical labor productivity records and you've got subs who get things right. Uh, don't miss anything. And then you add, you know, then you make your policy decision about overhead and profit. It's uh, not an issue I pay much attention to. Now, I, I will tell you the only way I know to get, you know, get some figures about what things are costing. Um, you can sort of by keeping your ear to the ground, you know, bumping into somebody who's doing, has put a project out to bid, maybe to, you know, uh, someone who wants to build a, you know, who's not a builder, but who wants to build a spec house. Um, and you ask them, what, you know, where'd your bids come at? You know, what, what, would, what were they running per square foot? And you can learn, for example, that around here, you know, in San Francisco, you can't really build and construction cost only for much less than 700 bucks a square foot. 
you can learn what square foot costs, maybe from, you know, gossip around town. You can learn what square foot costs are running in your own neighborhood. There's only one other way that I know of to get information about costs, and that's to form the kind of group that I was fortunately the member, a member of here in the East Bay for years. That was a group we called the Splinter Group. The Splinter Group was started by a bunch of guys, some friends of mine, who uh, were sick and tired of the NAHB, NARI kind of groups. They thought they were kind of sleazy. And they just decided to form a different group where people were, you know, embraced different values. And they, these are guys with a sense of humor, and they called their group the Splinter Group. Once a year, they'd get together and have a meeting of the board of non-directors. Well, actually, we would get together. I was very, very lucky to meet these guys right after they'd had the idea of forming this group, and they pulled me in. We'd get together once a year and have a meeting of the board of non-directors, and then we would um, select subjects to talk about at our eight annual meetings, and guys would step up and volunteer to host the meetings. We developed a culture of being very open with one another about our prices, our costs, our challenges, our successes. And that culture worked up to a point. The group was so successful, it eventually attracted 500 members, and then it didn't work anymore for a variety of reasons, which there's no need to go into. But it's possible. And, and, and now, interestingly, and I'll add this, once the group failed, it broke up uh, into a bunch of little split uh, sliver groups, slivers off the splinter. And there, the culture of openness and candor and mutual help was recaptured. And in those, in such groups, you can get real information about what costs are running. There's, there's something about the culture here where I live in Northern California that permitted the formation of such a group. I think there are a lot of parts of the country where builders are too damn suspicious of each other, unnecessarily so, and they won't, they won't reveal anything about what they do, do to each other. And they're hurting themselves by doing so. Because they don't have the, you know, acquire the kind of mutual help that those of us in these splinter and sliver groups were able to avail ourselves of and give to our, you know, co fellow builders. You mind sharing what the complaints were that some of these guys in this group had against the NAHB type groups? I forget what they're called, like the Builder 20 groups or whatever. The NAHB group that we didn't like was something, it was, I can't even remember, it was called Building B-I-A something or other. It's so long ago I can hardly remember it. It was sort of a a, a, a branch of the NHB devoted to um, uh, remodeling. But uh, I'll tell you, I mean, I, the NHB may do some very good work, but every encounter I've had with the NHB has been off-putting. I mean, this remodelers group was, it was kind of a suede shoe culture. You know, a lot of their conversation was about how you manipulated clients and how you put one over on your clients. They viewed their clients really as marks rather than as fellow members of your community that it was your duty to serve, not, not without decent pay. You know, you had you had the right to be treated fairly just as your clients had a right to be treated fairly. These, these guys in this BIA industry group did not embrace that kind of culture. And, and those of us who decided to split off from it, we were younger, you know, we were kind of hippie idealists, and we just didn't take to that sleazy culture. We wanted to produce something different, and it worked for us. I mean, now this group is very unusual among builders groups because virtually everybody in that original group, and that would include about 60 guys, and that we grew to about 60 guys, and then it just 
really exploded, became, we acquired 500 members and it failed. But of those 60 guys who were longer term members of this group, virtually every one of them has succeeded. Um, there's a few bankruptcies, but precious few. Uh, I, I can only think of one or two off the top. And that's very unusual. The reason we were successful, the reason I was successful was because we had one another. And the guys in that group educated me. My book on running construction companies is really just a compendium of the lore and wisdom and knowledge I acquired from those guys. You can't beat your peers, your serious, conscientious peers, as a source of education about how to be a successful builder. And it is worth getting together with. I wish every city in the country had splinter groups and sliver groups. Construction industry would be way ahead if, if we had that. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, I appreciate the messaging that you guys out of California are putting out there because I, I think you may be my second guest out of California. First was a guy named Ed Earl. I don't know if you know him, but uh, he talks about this approach in the business called collaborative construction, which is similar to what, what you alluded to a second ago, which is it's better for everybody involved. It's already a risky enough business. It's better for everybody involved rather than trying to take advantage of, of someone or uh pull one over on your clients, as I think you said, you know, this idea that everybody should be able to be treated fairly and you can, you can bring everybody to the table and find those mutual goals and work together. There's really something to that. This guy had his, his, uh, his nickname is the Zen builder, which I love it. He's like a, uh, he's a practicing, uh, Zen Buddhist. And you can see, you can see the, uh, uh, like the, those footprints, those footprints within his his business philosophy. But he he's a fascinating guy and 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 has a, a real truth that he's spreading out there in the building community. Well, this is I think we're probably getting beyond the scope of the actual podcast you're going to create. But I, I just want to tell you that this idea of collaborative building, which I think he means getting the owner, the builder, the designer together and working as a team. Has, has spread far and wide. The AIA embraces it with something called integrated project delivery. Oh, you've seen that in the book, perhaps. There's a chart um, which, which, which illustrates it. But I just would like to take the liberty, again, at the risk of sounding somewhat vain, of telling you that idea originated in the original Splinter Group. And the truth of the matter is it originated with a talk I gave to the Splinter Group going on 40 years ago. I encountered competitive bidding, and I said, no way, man. I'm not going to put in the work it takes to create an estimate for these huge, complex jobs without pay. And I got lucky. I found some customers who would pay me for the pre-construction work. I developed the idea, and I gave a talk about it. I had to give the talk twice because the hall I was speaking in it only held 125 people. Nobody knew who the hell I was. I hadn't written my book yet. But they saw this invitation to come to a meeting about called Beyond Competitive Bidding, and every contractor in town came. And guys grabbed a hold of the idea and evolved in all sorts of wonderful ways. And that really was the inception of this movement, which is now a powerful, powerful national movement toward a different way of doing the construction business. So I just had to sound off a bit. I'm sorry, Jerry. No, no, that, that's great. Well, as my ADD personality tends to do, I think we did move a little bit off the original subject, but this is good. This is good material, and at some point, I want to come back and visit with you. Maybe another interview, but uh, visit with you about the, your philosophy on these 
on charging for your bids. It is, it is best practice, but there's some salesmanship or not salesmanship, but communication that should, that education, there you go, education that needs to happen. And, and so I want to learn at some point what your approach is. I think our listeners would appreciate that. I'd love to do a podcast on that. I, there's a whole chapter in Nail Your Numbers called Beyond Bidding for Free. Yeah, that's right. goes into that subject and lays out about everything I know about it, actually. Yeah. We'll come back to that another time. For now, I think this has uh, been a pretty wide-ranging but informative episode. So uh, we'll be back with our part two of our series with you, David. But for now, thank you. 